Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 100, which is extremely fun. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate than bringing on two great, I would say friends. Like I consider you guys both friends. I enjoy our conversations. You've both been on the podcast prior. I think extremely knowledgeable, but Dan Ralph and Ashley Foster. Guys, thank you so much for joining me and celebrating 100. It's great. Thanks for having us. Officially in the graybeard season of the podcast. I like it. 100. Good deal. Yeah, that's Let's right. Let's go. So with that, I posed the question to the Facebook group. And for anyone listening that doesn't know about the Facebook group, just head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com, scroll to the bottom, click that, and I'll make sure you get into the group. And I'm trying to pull questions more often for guests and for conversation because I think it's been a lot of fun. So I threw out that I was going to talk to both of you and we got a good question that I think is actually really, really good. And it was asked, what investment account should you fill first or which one to have secondary if extra money comes in, i.e. bonus slash maybe a bigger tax return? I'm going to throw it over to you first, Ashley, to see what you think. And then we'll go and uh, hear Dan's thoughts as well. Yeah. And so the question specifically was around investment account, right? And so this takes into account, I think, that you have a fully funded emergency fund that's sitting in cash. Yeah, it sucks. It's not earning a lot of money these days, but you at least have something to fall back on if you have an emergency. So to me, the hypothetical on this question would be that you have that and that you're also able to go ahead and kind of contribute to your workplace 401k, right? And so if you're doing those two things and you also have a little bit of extra money that you'd like to go ahead and set on the outside, the easiest thing to go ahead and do is just open up a quote unquote brokerage account, an old school traditional brokerage account. You can do it like at an E-Trade or a TD Ameritrade or uh, Schwab or what have you, Betterment or whatever works for you. And that's going to be, I think, a pretty good start to opening up and funding an investment account. Another good one out there would be like Acorns where they kind of round up your money and stuff. That I think is going to be a really good shot of where you should be tucking away money if, and again, I always bring up the if, if you have an emergency fund that's got money set aside, that's in cash that you can grab in a pinch if you have a big emergency. And then two, that you're at least putting away money into a retirement account at work if you are offered one at work. If not, then you can create one through an individual retirement account or an IRA if you don't have one at work. And then you would want to look at funding your traditional brokerage slash investment account that's not tied to a retirement account. Those are good points. I would agree. And I think the big thing with funding a brokerage account is what are you investing for? That's probably the biggest question we ask clients when they've kind of started to fill all of those first buckets that Ashley mentioned about an emergency fund. You're taking advantage of your workplace, either employer match or you're actually maxing your company retirement plan. And then the next step is saying, okay, do I need money for kind of that next maybe five to 15 year period? Because a lot of listeners I'm guessing are probably in their thirties and forties. And so they're quite a ways away from 59 and a half, which is when you can use retirement accounts. And so I know at least for a lot of cases for younger clients, they're looking to maybe buy a home in the next few years, or maybe they're upgrading their house. They're getting kind of their dream home or a bigger home because their family's expanding. 
And so they're putting money into a brokerage account instead of maybe another retirement account beyond their work, but they're not necessarily investing that money. You know, when people say investing, they're thinking about stocks or equity type investments, but you can be putting money into those accounts, but the goal still needs to match up what you're trying to do with those dollars. And so I can say most of our clients that are in that situation, they're in their 30s, growing family, they're maxing out their company 401k or simple IRA, but their brokerage account is largely in conservative investments because they're going to use it for something soon. Maybe they're dumping a lot of money towards waiting to dump a lot of money towards student loans once the deferred interest and payments finally ends, maybe in February next year. Or yeah, they're upgrading their house, they're buying a car, or you know, in some cases, they're not using that account because they're putting money into a 529 for their kids. So that's the one thing. Going to the brokerage account, I think, is the logical next step. But just make sure, you, again, you have a goal for it because index funds, however you decide to invest is fine, but it's still got to match what your end goal is for those dollars. Great points. What do you guys think about tapping or saving into a Roth, knowing that you can still have access to kind of those contributions, but also then leverage that for a first home purchase if someone has been renting? Any thoughts around that? I'm not a fan of tapping it, but I do think it gives you flexibility. I don't think there's any hard and fast, you should never do something. And so for people who can contribute to a Roth, the order of operations, it's contribute to your workplace plan to get your employer match. And then don't do anything above that until you then maxed out your Roth and then go back to your company plan and do those pre-tax deferrals. Because especially in VetMed, there's only so many years you're going to qualify to contribute to a Roth directly before you're going to have to do some type of backdoor strategy. So as long as you can contribute to one, you should definitely be doing so. And going back to that question that you had, Isaiah, right? Well, why not use a Roth? I'm just in my practice, in my view, I'm just a fan for allocating dollars to specific goals in specific areas, right? And so unless you have maybe a Roth IRA or, or even a traditional IRA that you've kind of had for a bit or what have you that has that first home time, you got the $10,000 in there so you can use it as a first time home purchase, right? Perfect. But if you don't and you're saying, hey, I want to go ahead and buy a home, let's say in five years or what have you, right? So you set yourself a specific number for the down payment and a time frame that you want to go ahead and purchase your home in, right? In that instance, then if I'm understanding the question correctly, I would counsel, or at least me personally, right? I would go, hey, I'm going to put it into this account that I can easily access, don't have to rely on specific rules or whatever that are there that who knows, things are set in stone today, they may change that five years from now, you never know, right? I'd rather have the certainty of having that money inside of an account that I control, that there's no strings attached to it or anything like that. And that's easily accessible. My view for IRAs is it's in the name, it's a retirement account, my overall and arching goal. I know some people that are out there that may use that, especially a Roth, to grab what they've contributed out of it. If they need it in a pinch or something like that, you're able to do it. There's some rules and order of operations or what have you, but you can still grab that money depending on the order of operations. But that's another conversation. I am just more of a fan of if you have a set goal and a set time frame, like Dan was talking about, then the key is is to use specific accounts that are easily accessible for those goals, right? If they're non-retirement goals. Yeah. And I love this because I'm actually going to ask a question to follow up this that may come into alignment. But I think as a listener, 
yeah, I definitely fall more into a camp where I maybe don't necessarily agree with the same thoughts and have a different view. But I think that's what is beautiful about our industry is like, as long as you understand the trade-offs, everyone's going to have their own style. And I think that's the key thing. Cause I'll use the example. I think I've shared this in the podcast. Like when I started my business initially, I went in and had a Roth that I made contributions for years and was able to then take out some of those contributions to actually self fund some of the, the startup costs. Again, starting an RIA versus starting a veterinary hospital, very different startup costs. So it was a little easier for me to do that, but it has been one of those accounts that you can leverage and use. And I like it from the standpoint of I can put money in and make changes and tweaks. Don't have to worry about the tax benefit or the tax ramifications. Whereas in that individual brokerage account, unless you have an index that pays no dividends, no nothing, again, especially if you're starting out, the tax ramifications are going to be pretty small, but still taxes are taxes in, yeah, I'm a big fan of Ross. I'm a big fan of HSAs and leveraging those in unique ways and talking about that, that again, may make sense for some people, but there is, as you can tell from the question, the interpretation and the way that you want to go about it is going to be different depending on who you talk to, but there are some different things. I think I agree you want to tie it and understand what the money is for. Because if you're just putting money in there and there's no clear use case for this down the road, then it's going to be harder to decipher where's the best place to put it. Because there is going to always be trade-offs. And Ashley, per your point, it's a beautiful point. Things can change. And having something in an account that you know you never have to worry about it being harder to get to because it's a retirement account. Sure. Fair enough. And I think that's a good spot to kind of transition actually in the next question, unless you guys want to come back to that at all. And the one that I kind of wrote in say, hey, I'll go first when I was going to talk to you guys. What's a non-consensus view that you hold that maybe most advisors don't? And you can take that any way that you want. And it can be just the way you ask questions. It could be the tools you use. It could be investment philosophy. It can be anything. So any thoughts? And I'll kind of open it up and whoever wants to go first, have at it. I'll take this one. And I always love using this because it does generate a lot of controversy whenever I speak about it. But the non-consensus view, I think every once in a while that I'll take is that permanent life insurance has a place in a financial plan, even if you don't think it may sometimes. Again, this is person specific. And I'll give you an example of what's happened in my life and my wife's life here pretty recently where we've come across the opportunity, an investment opportunity. And I have a whole life insurance policy that I've had forever. When I was in the life insurance business, I bought it probably back in 2011. And I've kind of kicked myself in the butt going, man, why did I even do this? Well, frankly, I did it because I earned a commission off of it, right? But I always look at the fact that I could have made more money had I invested that in a brokerage account on an automatic basis, which frankly, back in 2011, there wasn't much opportunity to do something like that. You didn't have a betterment or a wealth front or really any clever way to do stuff like that that was easily accessible like on an app or something back then. But with that in mind, we've come across an opportunity and I've got about $25,000 sitting in this permanent life insurance policy that I've been accumulating over a period of time. And that money is available to me on a loan basis. And so I'm going to take a loan from that policy. We're going to use that money. I think I could access about twenty-four grand. And then we're going to use that money for our investment opportunity. And then if the investment pays off, take that money back, put it back into the policy and been able to go ahead and really leverage this kind of benefit that's been accumulating, right? It's something I never thought I would ever take advantage of. Like that was a situation I never thought that I would use this policy for. I mean, been paying on it for so long, I figured I might as well keep it. Nice little death benefit at the end and what have you, right? But now it's kind of come in handy. 
to have this asset kind of sitting on my balance sheet that is sitting there that I can go ahead and access and get cash out of it when we may not have a massive amount of cash reserve sitting around for this opportunity that's kind of presented itself to us. So it's, uh, like I said, for me in my practice, when I speak to clients, there's very rarely a case where something like that would pop up where a, a permanent life insurance policy would make a lot of sense. But as the contrarian view, I guess, and it's always fun to have these discussions with uh, on life insurance with other advisors, I would think that that would be my non-contrarian view where having a permanent whole life insurance policy actually kind of paid off, <laughs> I guess, in a sense. All right. We are definitely starting off on the swing in here. And I'll, so, hey, this is the I'll fun say part. I'll take it one step further. Different subject, but just to definitely with the three of us, I know is a bit different. I am very comfortable with clients holding as much cash as makes them feel comfortable, which I know discussing with Isaiah may not be the most favorite (laughs) conversation or actually it is a favorite conversation, but we are definitely on opposing sides on that, both for good reasons. But so cash is important, one, because it makes people feel comfortable. And the second thing is there might be a reason somebody wants to hold cash more so than they are afraid of investing or they're cared about inflation. Just through my own family interactions, just personally with clients, extended family, things like that, there's a concept in personal finance called money scripts. Some of you may be aware of it. I know Ashley and Isaiah are. There's a financial psychologist, Dr. Brad Klontz. He came out with they're essentially money beliefs. I mean, it's how you were interacting with money in your childhood that kind of shaped your view of finances throughout your life. And cash is one of those things that I feel like really tells a lot about a person in terms of how their money scripts were developed over the course of their lifetime. Some clients feel very comfortable holding a lot of cash, regardless of the fact that it's either losing purchasing power or it's inefficient. And then other clients, you can't even get them to think about an emergency fund because they're so comfortable having little to no liquidity, both of which have their advantages, both of which can be very risky. But I think that's one view that I have with cash is that it can bring a lot of comfort. And I think the comfort can be significantly more important in a financial plan than the added return on that cash, whether it's getting invested in the stock market, bond fund, cryptocurrency, any of those pieces. I've learned just coming back to money scripts, how people viewed it, whether it's avoiding money conversations, they're very interested in money conversations. Cash is one of those things that I feel like I can learn a lot about a client. And that also I'm very comfortable with clients holding higher than average cash balances because it brings that peace of mind to the financial plan, which I think that's the biggest thing with financial planning, whether you're doing it yourself, whether you're working with an advisor, it's minimizing mistakes more so than it is doing the very best decision. If you're talking about investing and your conversation or your argument is in between what's the best type method of investing or Bitcoin, early adoption, things like that, you're already in a fantastic place. And so really from there, it's just minimizing mistakes as as much as possible. It's not necessarily like generating alpha or generating return because I think the biggest form of alpha is minimizing mistakes and the financial plan itself is going to help you do that. And so cash, even though, yes, it can be inefficient as advisors, a lot of advisors don't bill on cash. And so 
we're losing fees ourselves by having a client in cash, but it brings so much comfort to their plan. So we're fine with it. So I know that's a hand over to you, Isaiah, but what's your contrarian view? So for everyone listening, usually we have video on, we had some weird connectivity things, but I've just been smiling as you guys have talked about this, because that's why I love this question, because it is so fun just to hear other people's opinions where you may not agree, even though I think both Dan and Ashley and I agree on probably like 95% of everything. There's like little things. And it's not even that I necessarily disagree. It's just like, oh yeah, that's an interesting take. And I did not know what you guys both would say. And I would have not thought either of what you just said. So it's fun. We'll come back and kind of discuss each one and we kind of pick them apart. Mine is going to be no surprise to either of you (laughs) either. So mine is that everyone should own Bitcoin, right? Like that is going to be mine. And that is something that I certainly have embraced. I talk about it a ton. I get told even by my business partner, hey, I hear it, I get it. But to me, it is the story of this decade. It is something that is extremely important for people to understand. It is still so early, just in conversations that I have over and over again. But when people ask at the fundamental layer, right? Like what is Bitcoin? First, I would say we've had two different podcasts specifically on. I did a radio show, which is number 84. And I interviewed Tyrone Ross in episode 52. Like I would encourage you to go back there. I'm not going to rehash all that conversation. But at the end of the day, you want to hold the best form of money available to you. And I believe that Bitcoin is that. And funny stacks, I was looking this up, Dan, as you were talking, right? There's a site and I'll link to it in the show notes called priced in Bitcoin 21.com, but it basically prices everything in Bitcoin over the past five years. And so if I look at US dollars, the US dollar is down 98.81% to Bitcoin over the last five years. Again, I know like I can't see you, Dan, but I can feel the eye roll as I say that. But there is reasons to hold cash. And I totally agree. Even going back to the first thing that we talked about with what accounts, like you have to have the emergency fund. You have to have some things there where it's like, hey, oh shit, something happened. Like you put on a credit card, like that's an easy way to get in trouble quickly. But I do believe from a non-consensus view, a lot of people that I respect that are fee-only CFPs will tell you, you just need stocks and bonds. And I think that they're 100% wrong. I think Bitcoin needs to be owned by everyone. And I think it can be something that helps level the playing field, especially for veterinarians that feel like they're underpaid, which I believe most of you probably are underpaid. Um, If you're saving in a better money that can appreciate in value versus devalue like the US dollar, that's great. That allows you to take the blood, sweat and tears that you put into your job and save all that energy and all that effort into something that's going to reward you over time. That's literally my easy version of why Bitcoin matters. There's a ton of nuance and a lot of conversation that goes beyond that. But that would be my view. With that, I want to open it back up and let's actually go back to start with Ashley's and kind of discuss it because I think it's interesting to think about having the ability to take advantage of an opportunity that presents itself. There is a lot of value to having liquidity, which I think actually ties in great with Dan's conversation as well. With holding more cash, you can actually see an opportunity and say, yep, I want to move forward and jump on something. So having the ability to have that whole life policy with cash value, it works, right? Now, even you admitted, like, is it the most efficient thing? No, but did it help you solve for something that is there today? 100%. So I don't hate it. I think, as you mentioned, it's how it's positioned and how it's sold. And I think as long as people know the trade-offs, I'm not as upset about it. It's just so many times it's sold as this solves the world's problems, which I don't necessarily agree with. And I totally agree with you on that one, because coming from the industry and coming from that side of the business, I mean, the conflicts of interest were super ripe and 
you drink a lot of Kool-Aid when you go into one of these big companies to learn how to sell life insurance and things like that. And I agree with that part for sure. And it is very much missold. We see it all the time when we sit down with clients and we go, oh, you have a permanent life insurance policy and they're maybe making $100,000 a year as a, like a third year associate, you know, and they're putting $500 a month away into this thing. And you're going like, well, are you funding a Roth IRA, right? And they have no clue. And we roll our eyes at them. And so with that in mind, though, I've seen it where it works. It is in rare occasions, I think, where it does work. And typically, if the premium isn't like outrageous, like I'm probably putting maybe 250 bucks a month into this policy. And I have been doing so for a period of time. And that was no sweat off my shoulder. I mean, it, it's for our budget and things like that. It, it wasn't like a five or six or $700, some of these premiums that we've seen before when we sit down with clients and you're going like, hey, this is taking up a significant chunk of your savings cash flow. So in that instance, it turned into kind of this Swiss army life where, you know, it was either empty our brokerage account, which we didn't want to go ahead and do since there were a pretty good amount of gains in the brokerage account. We had some money set aside in cash, but that wasn't enough. So it was like, oh, hey, here's this other asset that's kind of sitting on our balance sheet called a life insurance company. Yeah, you can take a loan in this amount. And then the idea is, is when the investment pays off here, hopefully pretty soon that we'll have enough cash to just put it back in there. And it's like, I took a loan for myself. I paid myself back and cool. All right, this thing keeps pumping along and doing what it's supposed to do. And so to go back to what you were saying here though, Isaiah is like, yeah, the key is, and why I think a lot of fee only financial advisors like ourselves are very skeptical of it is the fact that it is is so missold. I mean, it is dangerously missold and the incentives aren't aligned and the benefit of the client. The incentives are mainly aligned for the benefit of the insurance salesman that's selling it, right, at the end of the day. So, yeah, so that's my whole life story. I'm sticking to it, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love it. But I think at the end of the day, as fiduciaries, which we are, we're legally obligated to do what's in the best interest of the client. I think we have a duty to consider maybe having overfunding with cash on one end, right? If it makes a client feel better or having crypto as an asset class that's sitting on our balance sheet. If a client understands what it's all about and they're the right type of client that believes that crypto is basically the thing of the future, right? We have an obligation to have an understanding of all of these different assets, I think, and to be sure that we are knowledgeable about these assets rather than having a bias, we all have to have, I think, an open mind. And I think that's what's great about this question that you have, I see it, because even though you know, 95% of the things we probably agree on, maybe there's a 5% where we're kind of like, eh, you know what I mean? But I think at the end of the day, having a conversation like this, and for the listeners, I think this is important, having a conversation like this between three advisors that may have three different points of view on 5% of what they believe in the whole planning realm. I think it's great because then we all learn from each other and then we all have an understanding. So then when we sit down with a client, right, like a listener, you know, who may be really into cryptocurrency and has that belief, right? Well, I know through my conversations with Isaiah, like, hey, I know about this. I know how Bitcoin works. I know how this could be beneficial to this person long term that believes the view on Bitcoin and great. No, I'm not going to say, hey, this thing is a mess. Get out of it. You know what I mean? And be a, a fuddy-duddy or something like that. So I think these conversations are very important to have. Yeah, definitely. and. I think the most important thing is whenever we talk about these different beliefs is each of us come at it with a client and that, yes, we feel that certain parts of a, either an investment portfolio or financial plan are important, but every single client, 
we start with a financial plan, each of us. And to some degree, it either is or isn't going to make sense for each individual client. And so it's like, yes, we need to know everything about it. And, you know, we can be big believers in things. But then you get a client to where like one of these makes zero sense for a client. You have a client that with access to cash or uh, interest in cryptocurrency or permanent life insurance. And there's always going to be a client that either it's a great fit or it's a horrible fit or there's just no application for it. And so, yeah, we like to go back and forth about each of these subjects. But in the end, I think all of us are believers in each one of the things we talked about. It's just to some degree of like when it actually applies to a client, whether or not it's going to be a recommendation. Because while I poke fun with Isaiah about cryptocurrency, I don't not believe in cryptocurrency. It's just I go back to I have an overwhelming number of clients where I have this cash conversation. And so that leads me to have my own beliefs, biases, blind spots, and to where I appreciate having Isaiah to open me to some of these conversations about crypto that maybe, you know, just my client base, they're not necessarily interested in them. Or we do have the conversation, but it may not be a fit per se. And also just because my client base tends to be older. And then same thing actually with permanent insurance to where I do have a lot of experience with it because in a prior position, I was doing ultra high net worth planning for business owners that sold. And so these are families with 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. And so they're looking at giant estate tax bills to where permanent life insurance is a very common conversation and very strong planning tool in those conversations. And so that, to me, when I hear permanent life insurance, there are ways that it's sold very inappropriately, but there's also places where it's a really strong planning tool. And so, uh, yeah, in the fee-only world, we just can't ever completely sign off something as, oh, it'll never be used or, oh, it should never be talked about or we should never consider this because every single situation is different. And it does apply to some people and might not apply to others. I want to go back and ask a quick question to Ashley and also just bring up another topic that kind of relies on or not relies on, but is in the same discussion. So you were talking about the different buckets of things that you had to pick from. Ashley, it was like cash, you had investments, and then you had the whole life policy. You talked about the investments having capital gains. One of the things I wanted to bring up, and I wrote down just as a, a thing to come back to that people might not know as well, is you can use and margin that account as well. Now, again, there's risk with that. I would not encourage someone to go into that without understanding the risk involved. Did you look at that as well and think about margining any of the probably equity holdings that you have in a brokerage account? I did look at that. And the interest rate, though, on the margin account was, I think, like 2 or 3% higher than the interest rate on the life insurance loan. Interesting. Okay. And that was going to be my follow-up question after it was, I wonder what the differences was. And not that I'm like trying to pry into everything you got going on in your business, but I think that's an important part to like check all the different options. And I think that's an important piece. So thank you. Yeah. And I can confirm I've seen that as well. We don't really use margin within our firm, but we've had clients that come to us that have used it in the past and recently had a situation where we looked at it. And again, the same thing, the interest rate was just significantly higher than what would make sense to use. And just to give people an idea of the interest rate, I know the last time that I looked at it for someone, it was basically the prime rate. And then I'm just going to look up what prime is right now as we're talking, which is 3.25. And I think it was prime plus two and a half. So it'd be like five and three quarters today. It would be kind of the estimate if I had to kind of guess what a margin amount would be, just as an example. I don't know if that's remotely close, but that 
reminds me of a conversation I had with someone where we set it up, but they actually never utilized it. So cash, Dan, you know that we don't see eye to eye on that based on like polar opposite views, but I can appreciate the desire because there is a comfort level there. And depending on when you talk to different clients, I'll ask one of my favorite things that I'll ask. And like one of the meetings that we'll have is when you see people's cash levels of just like, is there a number out there that makes you feel good? Or maybe the question is, what's the number where you start getting nervous when you check and look at either emergency savings, what you have in cash? And I think that drives a great conversation. And I would encourage everyone to, again, like you said, regardless of if you work with advisor or not, understanding what's that level for you. And then how do you avoid getting to the point where you have this stress of like, oh, crap, we don't have enough. And we're exposed if something happens like, hey, everyone has probably heard the stats of the Americans that can't find four or $600 in an emergency. Like you don't want to be in that situation where you run too close to the edge and then it burns you. The one thing I don't want to get to people view is that like, oh, it's fine to hold cash and that there isn't risks with holding cash. I think the way you framed it, Isaiah, was like, what is that number to where you start to feel uncomfortable if you had less than this amount? The emergency fund, you know, the three months if you're single, six months if you're married, that rule of thumb, it's a decent rule of thumb, but that's going to be different for everybody. Or in some cases, there's another short-term goal that's going to lead you to have that higher cash, like we mentioned, or in your case, Isaiah, utilizing a Roth money for that kind of short to medium term goal if you needed it for like a home purchase. But the one case to where cash can be detrimental or just not investing, there's a way of getting into the market called dollar cost averaging. And if you think about your 401k, your company retirement plan, every time you get your paycheck, your company's taking a piece of your paycheck and investing it in your 401k. And so you're buying into whatever you've decided to set up as your investments in your 401k every two weeks or every month, however it is. And so you're buying at each time you're getting the price at each of those contributions. And so on average, you're getting a pretty decent price or you would hope to because you're going to get the average over that period of time, you know, that 12 month period. And so for clients that come to us, they've sold out of a business. They have a ton of cash. And so their thought is like, all right, great. I sold my business. I no longer have an income and I need to do something with this cash. I need to get it invested. And it can be scary to say, I'm going to put every proceed from selling my business into the market. And so one strategy is to dollar cost average. And so that would mean putting portions of cash into whatever you've decided as your investment portfolio over a period of time. So maybe you put in a quarter of it now quarter of it in six months, and then so on until you're fully invested to your mix. We've had a number of clients. We don't recommend clients do it one way or the other. We do present to them that over the long term, dollar cost averaging going in slowly underperforms. On average, you're getting the cheapest price buying into the market today than you are tomorrow or six months from now. While it's an important piece of the math, it's really a personal decision. And so for clients that did dollar cost average over a long period of time, they underperformed over the last five years. Markets have done very well, and especially Isaiah, if if we're looking at Bitcoin, insanely well over the last five and 10 years. But clients have been fine with it because of that comfort. Because the biggest thing is we just didn't want them to get two purchases in. So they're 50% there and the market freaks out or there's some thing that causes them to want to sell out of what they just put money into. 
And so the biggest thing is just getting to agree to a mix, getting them there. And if it means they have more cash than the Excel spreadsheet says they should, we're okay with it because ultimately it's going to lead them to make fewer mistakes in the long run. Minimize regret. I talk about that a lot, even with a student loan repayment plan. I bring that up a lot talking about student loans. Let's minimize regret and let's figure out what makes the most sense. And it's sometimes not always like what's going to be the least amount of cost, but it's minimizing regret with what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want to do? Same thing with cash. Ashley, any thoughts on cash conversations you've had with people lately on cash? I always go back to the mantra that a mentor always told me, right? Like cash is king, right? At the end of the day, it's always a good thing to have a refuge of cash you can easily pull from that you don't have to think twice about, right? Like with a brokerage account, you got to think about taxes and all the other things that go into making that decision. To pull out of a, let's say an ally, your high yield savings account, there's not much thought into that that comes out, right? So where I kind of counsel my clients on is making sure that we have the appropriate amount of cash set aside. If we're having a more of a higher level kind of conversation about their cash holdings and their emergency fund, right? The idea that I kind of bring to it is, is like, I view someone's job as like a stock. There's people that have very secure jobs and there's people that have super risky jobs, right? Like if you're a 100% commission salesperson, you've got a very risky job. But if you're an engineer at a very, very stable industry, your job security doesn't fluctuate too, too much. And so when I kind of approach it, I want to be sure that, okay, the guy, let's say a real estate agent, right? Every time they make a sale, boom. I mean, that's a transaction. They're not earning a paycheck and things like that. So I want to be sure that when I look at their cash account as a planner, that we have an overabundance of cash because there's seasons where they're selling like in the summer, they're selling like crazy and they're not selling anything in January, right? So they've got to go through the family after the feast. When I look at that cash conversation, we want to be sure that that person has a higher allocation of cash so that when the famine comes, They've got enough scrolled away for the winter so that they can go ahead and, and still maintain their bills and all these other things, right? If I've got an engineer client that's a high-performing engineering client, let's say at an oil company, right? At a very large oil company, like a Chevron or something like that. Even though the oil business is notoriously up and down, if you're working and you're a high performer at a super major, you're not going to need a lot of cash sitting around. And also, those guys and gals, when they get cut, they get very generous severance packages. So they're getting their salaries for a year, sometimes a year and a half, I've seen it, right? Where they're getting their base salary. So they're getting $150,000 for <laughs> one and a half years. So do those people need a very high allocation of cash? Uh, probably not. And we have kind of those dynamic conversations about job security, what their job looks like, and then how much cash they need to hold for that. So that's kind of maybe my contribution here to the cash conversation. But at the end of the day, I don't fight with clients. And you should, if you have an advisor, they should understand how you feel about cash and that security blanket. And if you feel really good having thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars sitting in the bank, and that's your non-negotiable, okay, cool. Then let's find a way to work with the forty, fifty thousand dollars sitting in the bank. Yeah, you're going to lose the inflation and all that other stuff. But if it just makes you feel really good, go back to Isaiah, right? the whole regret thing, if that just makes you feel really good having that and it helps you sleep better at night, perfect. Don't disturb that. But as long as you have an understanding that that cash sitting there could be losing out on value, opportunity costs, all of those different things, right? So you want to have a measured conversation with a professional like us as to what would be a good allocation to hold to it. But that's kind of the philosophy that I bring to cash planning and cash holdings when I'm speaking to clients and looking at their overall situation. 
as a veterinarian, especially today with the demand for veterinary care, I think veterinarians on average, and again, this is an Isaiah opinion, right? Can hold less cash than probably a lot of them think just because you can go pick up relief. You can do so many different things to get back and have an income real quick. And the fact that it's pretty hard at the moment to be let go from a clinic, unless you are really the one driving the toxic environment or you're just doing terrible work. So again, you got to find what makes the most sense. And then the trade-offs, right? Like you can fail fast, you can fail slow. And holding a lot of cash is definitely going to be one of those things that you can fail slow on. And it may not feel as bad failing, but you still absolutely will if you're going to hold a, a huge slug of cash for a long time. And I know, Dan, that's not necessarily what you were mentioning. You kind of talked about that as well. But just to throw that out there, because what I do see a lot is sometimes people, especially if you go back to the scripts conversation that you had, and I love that because one of the questions I like to ask is what did money mean growing up to you? If it was scarce, it was hard to come by and you're the first one in your family to make real money, you're probably going to want to hold more cash because you know what it felt like as a kid growing up when it was not there. And it's just a scary thing, even if you're in a great spot, even if you have everything put together. I can think of several people in my mind from conversations recently that are doing fantastically well, but still just suffer from that. Hey, when I was a kid, this is what happened. Yeah, it's a good point about the ability to kind of go get income if you need to in vet med, just with the extra relief shifts if you needed to. And just, I think we all are aware of the overall demand and open job positions within the profession. And if you're an owner, think about it this way. I think about this way as an owner of a registered investment advisor and they have all these clients. For me to be unemployed, I would need every single client that works with our firm to fire us or fire me if I'm the individual advisor that works with them. And that's a lot different than if I worked for a company and it's one person's decision. So if you do have the client relationships, if you are an owner, like it's a very different thing where you might think it's more risky to have your own business, where in reality, you take the risk up front. But over time, as you build that reputation and that brand, it's actually quite a bit different. You have a lot more resiliency, at least in my personal opinion. Again, I'll throw it out. Full disclosure, I own Bitcoin. I was that guy and like, 2010 that overheard some super nerdy guy talking about it at a conference said what the hell is this bitcoin thing it made absolutely no sense to me but then i figured why not give it a shot and i'll tell you how different the market is today i got onto some website that connects people peer-to-peer and i sat down in a starbucks with a very interesting character who had a laptop and i had cash and an envelope that i passed along to him at a table and he did some magic on the computer and I had Bitcoin. And that was... I love that story. That was, <laughs> that was back in 2011. Things have definitely professionalized and changed a little bit to where I felt like I wasn't doing like something, I don't know, like a spy movie or something like that. Damon was going to come out and start shooting up the Starbucks or something to steal the Bitcoin. It was awkward. But I've seen this thing take off cryptocurrency and things like that since the early adoption of it. I kind of go back and kick myself in the ass and say, man, if only that white envelope were a little fatter, you know what I mean? Back in 2011, that would have been great. But I'm a believer in it. I'm not a believer in it for, I don't think it's going to be a currency that replaces the dollar or any other quote unquote fiat currency. I just don't see it in my view. What I see it more as, and I think what it's become, and I'll leave this to Isaiah to let me know, is I'm for sure he's more grounded in the game currently than I am. But I see it more as a store of value. And if you look at the way 
in my opinion, right, on how people are going out there and mining this thing, right? I mean, it almost just feels like it's a new gold. You know what I mean? I know people don't want to have that kind of like Bitcoin and gold connotation, right? But if you look at it, to me, it almost feels like a store of value of some sort, right? And I think now as the market matures in cryptocurrency, people are starting to really kind of put an intrinsic value to it. Whereas when cryptocurrency back in 2017, I believe that's when it first really started taking off and people started paying attention. I remember I did an interview with a media. I can't remember what the name of the media firm was or what have you. It had been some time ago, but no one knew about this thing. And I have absolutely no idea how they got my information. And they just started asking, well, what's this Bitcoin thing all about or what have you? And now you hear about it everywhere, right? Cryptocurrency. I mean, you look on CNBC and they're tracking the price of, of crypto. So it now has adoption and now there's a level of way to go ahead and kind of add some value to it. Whereas in 2017, you sat down as a fiduciary and there was no way for you to like, what's the value in this thing, right? Where does the value come from? You know what I mean? It just felt like funny money that just kind of just popped up on a computer somewhere. So my ultimate belief is I think it's a wonderful thing. I think that clients should, if they're comfortable and they understand the risks and the volatility of a cryptocurrency asset, if they're comfortable with that risk, then they should have a certain allocation to that as the quote unquote alternative asset piece within a portfolio, right? Like three to 5% or something like that, that they would have inside of an investment portfolio. So I'm on board. I'll leave it to Isaiah to give me the futurist view of the adoptions and what could be down the road for it. But I think cryptocurrency has a place. Dan, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to really quickly kind of chat through some things there with Ashley. So I agree with you right now. Bitcoin is going to be used as a store value, especially in the United States. And I think one of the key things to look at is Bitcoin is global, right? So it's not just in the United States. It's just how we're interpreting it because it's the way we see it. But it is being used peer-to-peer as a currency in a lot of different places. So if you look at places like Nigeria, Turkey, El Salvador adopted it, legal currency, legal tender, which is basically making it its national currency. There's going to be a lot of people around the world that are going to utilize it because they live in an environment where they have a currency that they use that is just getting destroyed, where El Salvador is a prime example. So El Salvador runs on the U.S. dollar. And when the U.S. creates all this additional stimulus and money and things for us and we get stimulus checks, people in El Salvador don't, but they see all of their wealth getting destroyed and basically stolen from them. And so there is going to be places around the world that are going to adopt it more. The United States for it to be used as a currency, we'd have to change our tax laws. So right now, if you buy Bitcoin, it goes up in value and you would transact in it. That is a capital gain. And so that needs to be changed. But can it be used as a currency? Does it have the ability, the capacity to do that? Bitcoin on the basically the base layer. So Bitcoin, fundamentally, the, you know, the 21 million, all that, like every 10 minutes, there's a new block. So the transactions are there. Everyone's like, oh, it's too slow to buy coffee. Well, the cool thing with Bitcoin, similar to the internet, is it scales. So you have like the base protocol and then you have on top of that, like internet, think of internet itself. Then you have Google and Facebook and all these other things built on top of that, right? Same thing in Bitcoin where there's this lightning network on top of the base layer and the lightning network, like its name, allows for basically instant payments, settlement transactions, and basically at fractions of a penny. So if you think about a small business and for anyone's a, a practice owner, Every time someone swipes a card in your practice, you're eating those fees, right? You're paying two and a half, three percent 3%. If we transitioned that into Lightning and used Bitcoin, you would save that 3% on every single transaction. What is the dollar amount that comes back into the economy by doing that? When you have people that play in the middle, like a Visa, MasterCard, that payment network that's been built out, 
but they are living and taking that rent every time that you have transactions. And that can actually be destroyed and replaced with Bitcoin with that lightning layer. So to me, that's like so exciting and so cool that that's continuing to grow. And that network is just really kind of started to work and, and come out in 2018, which has been much later from Bitcoin starting in 20 or sorry, in 2009, but it's happening, right? Like I do think, and this is my, I don't know if it'll be when my son's older, but I do think fiat currencies all die and Bitcoin is the ultimate winner. I know that sounds wild and crazy, but I do think the global reserve currency, what we all in the world will transact on will be some form of the lightning network and then Bitcoin for big things. Think of Bitcoin transactions as like when you close for a house and you got to wire the funds or whatever, that's what the base layer will be. So that 10 minutes will be pretty quick, but without getting like way too deep down the rabbit hole, that's kind of the way that I would position it. Dan, I know you have thoughts. We've chatted on this offline, online so many different times. Yeah, I'm not against cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. I think my biggest frustration with it is not even the idea, the use, the ability for it to be a store of value. It's a lot of the narrative, the noise that comes with cryptocurrency that is fun money, gotcha money. It's people who don't probably truly believe in it that are there to make a quick buck and hop out. I don't have an issue when advisors are interested in it and recommend it to clients because you would hope that they are doing research, they understand it, they're making sound recommendations. And the big thing, Ashley, you pointed out was it's a piece of an overall portfolio and financial plan. I think you mentioned 3 to 5%. That's, I think, the biggest part of the conversation that just doesn't ever get mentioned on social media or articles is the talk of cryptocurrency is that it is going to save everything. And I know, Isaiah, you don't believe that, say that, you know, it's, it's a piece of a financial plan. And there are things with technology that, like you said, with wires, home closing, things like that, that could really be improved with the adoption of things like this. But I think my biggest frustration is that the conversation is so centered around Bitcoin and it needs to be owned. Everybody should have it. But people take that and they say, oh, I need to own this. And so then they just go buy it. But there's no strategy. There's no goal. There's no reason behind doing so. And that's dangerous. I think, especially in our younger generation of advisors, we've never really gone through a significant downturn in a market. You know, we saw last year in March, markets dropped significantly, but they were back within four months. Normally, when we have big drops, markets are down for like four, five, six years. And it's painful. And it's a mess. And for some cases, it's uh, global economic or 2008 mortgage reasons. But then there's also situations like 2000 with the internet and the dot-com bubble. For every person that wanted to own Google and companies like that that are coming around at the end of the century, there were a lot of them that owned a lot of websites that never made it. And I think that's... I applaud anybody that gets it right and makes a ton of money. Everybody, there's some degree of luck, skill, early adoption, like you mentioned, Ashley, where it's like, you happen to hear about it back in 2011. And so you've known about this thing for forever, which you know a lot of people just didn't get the case to where that would happen. But I do look at that as a risk in that, Isaiah, like I said, it's so early. There is a reason to potentially believe it in it now and in the future as it expands. But part of me does look at Bitcoin and wonder, is this going to be the one? 
that sticks around? Is this the company that you don't really hear about because ultimately it wasn't the one that survived? The certain degree of, I guess, concentration. Ashley mentioned, you know, store of value, uh, a commodity. Isaiah, I know it's not a good comparison, but oil and gas, corn, things like that, gold, silver. What if this is the bronze to gold and gold was the one that stuck around? That's where I ultimately have skepticism with painting with kind of the broad strokes of everybody should own it. And it's, I agree. The one thing, Isaiah, you definitely preach on and I agree with is there's a lot of noise out there with these alternative cryptocurrency coins that are just popping up and are very clearly noise. But should there still be a conversation about noise related to the big ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum? But I'll throw it back to you for input. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack and I want to try to get through it and not double our recording time because we could do this weekly and it would just be a blast and I would love it. But I know there's going to be some people that probably are going to tune this out. But for those that are sticking around, let's try to unpack it. So I think the first thing is the all or none, like you have to be 100% in Bitcoin or crypto. And let me just say this from a Bitcoin or crypto, it is Bitcoin, not crypto. So yes, Bitcoin is a crypto currency, right? And there's a lot of altcoins, aka shit coins that you don't need to own. So to me, it is focusing on the thing that matters, which is Bitcoin. Everything else, I reserve the right to change my opinion, but I will be very shocked if there is a reason to change because there's so much nuance I can't get into on this. I will link to it and encourage you to check out the webinar we did in March because I basically took 18 months of deep dive knowledge, try to put it into an hour conversation, but I explained why it's Bitcoin and not other things. The biggest thing is Bitcoin, the way it was designed, the way it came together, you can't duplicate that. There's no founder, the anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto people, him, her, they, we don't really know. Like you can't recreate that. It was a time and place. It was the perfect kind of immaculate conception to uh, kind of use a term that probably is slightly sacrilegious, but I think it's important to understand that it was a very unique time that it came out that the acceptance, the adoption in this like Trojan horse of it coming into the financial system, you can't duplicate that. So the other thing is to your point, Dan, is like, is this going to be the one that is the MySpace to someone else's Facebook? The answer is no. And I can say that with conviction for a couple of reasons, because there's been a lot of other attempts to try to perfect like crypto, digital money, all these other things that if you go back and just from like a history perspective, there's DigiCash from 89, there's CyberCash in 94, eGold in 96, BitGold in 98. All these had different properties that some worked, some didn't. What Satoshi did is like, take all these different pieces, add some other tweaks and perfected it. But it's been working on crypto since the 70s and 80s. So this was not the first attempt. I think a lot of people think that, but it is not. The other thing is a lot of people out that are venture capitalists will look at dominant digital networks as the winners. So if you think about dominant digital networks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Twitter, Google, YouTube, once they get over $100 billion, they're the dominant digital network. It is ingrained. Like people are using this. It's really hard. You have to like 100x or improve before someone's going to switch off of that, right? Like you're not just going to magically make a switch once you adopt something. Bitcoin is that as well. It's just under a trillion dollars. So it is a dominant digital network that has the built-in advantage of being the king to being the one that was adopted. And so if you look at network effects, there's the innovators, there's the early adopters, there's the early majority, late majority and laggards. We're still in early adopters, but there's a point in the chart and I would encourage you again, it's in that March webinar, which I'll link to. There's this part where there's, it's called the chasm and it's the jump from early adopters to early majority. That's what this decade is all about. That's why I say it's the story of the decade because that happens. 
And you're going to see a tremendous amount of adoption. And there's so many different stories. I mean, you look at the banks and the announcements of JP Morgan saying, you know, they'd fire someone if they didn't own it. Now they're offering it to their investors. Like the same thing, like there's this double speak and it's all the narrative is changing. And the other thing that you talked about, Dan, was the idea of it being early. And I agree it's early because Bitcoin is still sub a trillion. And you think about Apple as a stock is over 2 trillion. So from a dollars and cents perspective or Bitcoin and Satoshi's like, right, think about it as it is early. But the interesting thing is, so if you understand how long Bitcoin is traded in a truly free and open market that can't be manipulated, which I think part of the reason why you've seen the COVID crash, you saw that liquidity crunch in this massive sell-off. Well, then the federal government came in and injected a ton of money in, which it was a manipulation, blatant manipulation. That's a big issue. We don't have time to get into it, but that's why you saw that recovery, right? Like there's some issues with what we're doing is putting a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. That's the easiest way that I can explain it. It just makes the system more fragile, more fragile. And you'll see those kind of quick sell-off sharp things over time. Bitcoin doesn't have that. There's no backstop. It is truly able to be free and recover and do what it needs to do. Now, can there be people that will play games in it? Absolutely. So when I say it's not manipulated, I'm just saying there's no person behind the scenes that controls all of it. I know that a lot of people will say, oh, 90 some percent is controlled by a small majority. That's not necessarily true. And it's getting more distributed over time. And there's some really good research on that piece. But Bitcoin has traded for more hours than the S&P 500 because Bitcoin trades 365, 24-7. So actually, it's, it's an older asset than you think. So yes, it's only been around for 12 or 13 years, but it's actually traded more hours. And in a world of digital everything, that to me is actually quite astonishing. So when you think about the S&P, it only trades Monday through Friday during market hours. At night, it's not trading. On the weekends, it's not trading. On Christmas and holidays, it's not trading where Bitcoin trades all the time, right? You never can turn it off. So when I say it's early, I mean, it's early from an adoption standpoint, not necessarily early from the asset. And then the last thing I'll say before we kind of get some final comments, again, it's Bitcoin, not crypto. It's not altcoins. It's not Ethereum. It's not Cardano. It's not Litecoin. It's not Polkadot. It's not all this other crap. You just got to focus on understanding what is Bitcoin and Bitcoin is it's money. If you understand what is good money and what makes up money, Bitcoin starts to make a lot more sense. And again, it's an area that I think anyone that's listened to those other episodes that follows me on Twitter that has conversations, it's a passion point. And I think it's just really important to understand how impactful this can be because I think it truly can, if people understand why they own it and are willing to make that commitment, because it can be volatile. Again, it's early. The volatility is the price you pay for outsized returns. And I think something else that was talked about earlier is the dollar cost average piece. I think Dan talked about that. That's been my suggestion for a lot of people is make an initial purchase and then set up an automated savings plan. That way, if you see the volatility and it fluctuate all over the place, you're buying it cheaper, you're buying it more expensive, but you are saying, we are going to own this. We're going to have it as a portion of a portfolio. Again, I'm not saying, hey, 100% Bitcoin, don't own anything else, right? That's irresponsible. But it is making a commitment that you're going to do that. The data on dollar cost averaging is actually fantastic. Now, again, Bitcoin's price over any length of time looks fantastic. So caveat aside, you know, past performance, not future results, all that good stuff, right? But if you dollar cost average and we're buying either daily, weekly, every other week over the past eight years in any sort of allotment, your compounded annual growth rate, worst case scenario is 46%. 46% is a hell of a return. Absolutely crushes everything else from a dollar cost average standpoint. My question is, to advisors and to any individual, does that help your financial plan? If you have a small allocation to something that can provide an outsized return, the answer is probably yes. If it's a small allocation and it goes and is not a good return, does that damage your financial plan? Probably not. The pros outweigh the cons. 
and early adopters are going to get rewarded, but it's going to be something that everyone listening to this at some point will apply, will most likely own Bitcoin. And the last thing I'll leave you with is NYDIG did a study. And so NYDIG has helped a lot of institutional money and like banks and stuff build out their systems for how they're going to be able to offer crypto, again, everything, but also mainly Bitcoin. And the study that they came out with is that 46 million Americans own Bitcoin, saying 22% of adults. Now that could be $100 on Coinbase. I don't really technically count that because it's so small. It's might not even be impactful to that person, but there is starting to be more widespread adoption and awareness. That's my tangent. We could go on for a long time, but any thoughts or feedback from any of that? Because I don't want to just like cut it off and then not give you guys a chance to rebuttal. Because again, this was all the idea of non-consensus views. I appreciate everything you said. And I think the point you put at the end, the one addition I would say about uh, outsized return over, what was it, 43%, you know, over the last decade or so, if you were dollar cost averaging in, I think that's obviously fantastic returns. The one thing I always go back to, there shouldn't be one thing, which it isn't one thing, and, you know, it's a piece of a portfolio, like you mentioned. I think anything we've mentioned today, there's no one white knight to your financial plan. And Bitcoin isn't the white knight, permanent life insurance, cash, index funds, none of them are the savior to your financial plan or should be the thing that's going to get you to not have to continue your veterinary career, things like that. There are pieces of it that can improve, again, overall. If you're having these conversations, you're already in a fantastic place. If you're considering Bitcoin or I have the ability to hold more cash because I'm in such a good position to where I have that option, you're in a fantastic spot. But that was the one thing I just wanted to add on to that. 100% of what you said, Dan. I agree with that. We've been going for a little over an hour. This is a ton of fun. For anyone that made it all the way through, thank you. This has been a heck of a way to celebrate 100 episodes with the podcast and the journey. Dan and Ashley, I really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing some non-consensus views. I had other questions I thought we'd get to, but it's amazing what one good question can spark a conversation. So thank you. That was a ton of fun. And I think there's a lot to take from that. And hopefully people will be able to pull some nuggets out of there. So If you have any closing thoughts, want to hear them. If not, we'll kind of just wrap it up there. I just want to say thank you, Isaiah. 100 episodes is, one, just impressive just because doing anything for 100 versions of it is impressive. But I think this podcast brings a lot of knowledge to the veterinary profession that isn't broadly discussed. And so the fact that anybody that wants to put out information out there, I will always pat them on the back with trying to spread knowledgeable conversations about personal finance and just industry conversations. I know a lot of the conversations aren't even necessarily money focused. They're interviewing people who are very knowledgeable in the veterinary profession. So big congrats because 100 of anything is a impressive number. I think this is awesome. I remember when my wife kind of first turned me on to the podcast very early on and now made friends with you guys. I think that's number one, important to me. But number two, I think for the listeners especially, there's a lot of people out there, I think, a lot of people that call themselves financial advisors and they don't have your best interests in mind. And I think the cool thing about starting this podcast, Isaiah, and getting all these different points of view, not only just helping veterinarians just kind of find success in whatever chosen path that they want, but then giving them financial nuggets, I think, that are without bias and complex. And I think a lot of veterinarians need that. And I see it all the time where somebody's out there and My wife gets a ton of LinkedIn messages from quote unquote financial advisors and all they're trying to do is sell a life insurance or a disability product. And yeah, that's important. But like, I think there's a need for fee only fiduciary advisors to help 
veterinarians, especially young ones who associates, I think for me, right, to get them to where they want to go as the industry changes. And I think it's just really cool that you're bringing so many different perspectives and not just on a financial platform, but just different perspectives that are happening in vet med. And I always learn a lot. My wife always learns a lot listening to the podcast and the different perspectives. And I love it, man. So I'm happy that I've been able to kind of get in with this quote unquote click of y'all's, right? Like being a part of this and helping you grow everything. And we'll get to all the other types of questions that we had for this podcast for uh, episode 200. So I think we'll get there. Yeah, thanks. And I really appreciate it, guys. And I love doing it. And for me, I've learned a ton. So I appreciate anytime anyone reaches out and says, hey, been enjoying the podcast or I've listened and it's been helpful. So if you ever want to say thanks, I always appreciate it. Thank you for listening for those that have been consistent listeners. And yeah, look forward to the next hundred and we'll keep having some fantastic guests that are on their way. And if there's ever any thoughts or desires for certain content, always feel free to reach out. Let me know what you want to hear more about and I will make sure we find those guests. But until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.